What's good? Thank you so much for tuning in to this special interview episode of the News Olympian. My name is Mike Schuber. I am the titular News Olympian. I'm a grown man who never read the Percy Jackson books as a kid. I read them as an adult because I was determining if society had slept on the series. I answered that question with a resounding yes. And now I'm covering all the other Percy Jackson stuff to see if society has been sleeping on the whole of the universe of Percy Jackson. And I think the show is helping to wake people up. I am here joined by a very special guest. It is one of the showrunners of Percy Jackson and the Olympians. It's John Steinberg. John, how's it going? Everything's good. How are you? I'm doing very well. I am happy to be here, happy to be speaking with you. And what's fun is the scheduling of this, of this chat. It was done before the season two confirmation came through. And then now we are recording this after season two has been confirmed. Some people might call that a complete accident. (laughs) Other people might call it perfect planning. But regardless, it's a great excuse for us to be excited about season two. (laughs) Very excited about season two. Um, It's it's a little uh, a little daunting, a lot a lot to get going very quickly. But um, but yeah, it's um, it's it's all it's all happening. Yeah. Where were you when you finally got that confirmation? Was it in a big meeting? Also, if you can't talk about this stuff because of Disney, Disney stuff, I get it. But was it a cool moment when you got that confirmation? Like, yeah, we've got the go ahead. Um, I was at the Burbank airport, I think. I, I feel like these things tend to be um, a lot of um, this isn't official phone calls followed by the, uh, this is official phone call that tends to be anticlimactic. And so there was a little bit of that. But um. I think for this specifically, it's um, there's just sort of, I, I think, just a lot of excitement um, at the studio, at the company for the show. And so it was nice to feel that from, um, you know, from these people that have really supported us and supported the project and, and to feel like um, they felt like they could go to their bosses and say, we're going to go make more of this and, and to have the response be, you know, nothing but enthusiasm is, is great. Yeah. I mean, obviously the fans are really excited too. Is there anything in terms of what lies ahead in season two story-wise, particular things that happen in the books? Is there anything that you are most excited to get to work on and bring to the screen? Yes. You know, I, I, I this, this stuff that always tends to, to um, bubble to the surface when I, when I think about, you know, what I'm really excited to dig into tends to be the, the character stuff. And, and I think I'm, um, we sort of talked about it in other conversations, but Tyson to me is um, is a really interesting way of taking this relationship or a number of these relationships, Percy and Annabeth and Percy and Sally, and throwing the perfectly crafted curveball at it. And and so we're 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 pretty excited about that and getting to do you know a different kind of um, of main character creature work that's frankly more complicated. Um, Rover was um, complicated. But not like this, you know, not where every time, you know, every time you see his face, you're 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 asking the audience to to buy in. So, yeah, you know, new, new, new challenges, new puzzles, but um, but excited to to keep the story. Full. Yeah, I think it's going to be fun. I think it's going to be very exciting. And I'm excited to see what what you all have cooking up as far as with season one being complete, I guess you have experience with this with making other shows that have gone on and have done multiple seasons, but is there something about just like making a season two of a show that is particularly different or particularly exciting with, you know, we've kind of got the foundation, we get to make a season two, just like what's the difference in mindset of starting up versus continuing a story? Um, it's a really good question. Um, 
I don't know that one is um, net of all things easier or harder. They're they're hard in their own ways. Um, I think you know launching a show, um, especially a show where you're you're really building a world, um, is um, is really complicated and challenging, and um, just a million decisions that are getting made on any given day. Um, I think a, a season two like this one, any season two is hard. You know, you're 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 coming off of um, you know the the end of a story that took a tremendous amount of energy to get going and trying to relaunch that. That's a you know that's a a big lift. Um, but this one is just such a different animal. This story from the first one that in a way it is both a season two and a season one. You know, just because of how much of it is new. You know, production-wise, the world we're going to be living in, the kinds of creatures. So, uh, we, yeah, we we get it coming and going, I guess, with this one. We 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 face all the season two challenges and season one challenges. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you're talking about world building with season one, I feel like the show did a great job of getting as much as they can get in there, making sure anyone who's new to the story doesn't feel like they're left in the dust. But even with that, there's going to be little things here and there that don't get introduced, whether that is characters or particular aspects of the world. When you have a season two, especially if you guys get like more episodes or something, will you feel like, okay, here's a thing that was introduced in book one that we didn't have time to get to, but let's bring it in? Or is it more of like, well, we've laid the foundation in season one. We we should kind of just be focusing on books two and onward stuff. Bit of both. You're always trying to engage with that question, right? Of like what's in and what's out. Mm. The further we we get into this, you know, those questions don't get any simpler. I think I hope we were fairly um successful in, in sort of making sure that the stuff that I think frankly we as fans wanted to see in a show made it into season one. But there's definitely stuff that, you know, a season two opens up the opportunity to spend a little bit more time with the ideas of it. And so I, I think that that's um yeah, that that's definitely part of the laundry list of conversations happening right now about what this looks like and, and and how to build it right. Yeah. Going back a little more meta, I just appreciate all of the press things that you have done from the first thing where I saw you where you are at the New York Comic Con panel and you were kind of sitting all the way closest to the moderator, but you're doing a really good job of like getting everyone involved, not talking too much, deferring to the right people. Is doing that sort of thing, like all these press things that you got to do, this included, is that something you enjoy or is it just like you're just very good at it, even if it's not something you like? Because I think you're fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think with you, you, you spend so much energy, there's so much investment in, in these things that, um, you know, in the making of it and and in the process and and in sort of um, all of the, the tremendous amount of teamwork that goes into it, that when, you know, when you're in an environment where people want to talk about it for the first time and and get into it it's um sometimes it's nice to be able to take a moment to step back and realize like oh look at look at this thing we made um this is this is pretty cool it's very easy to lose sight of that when you're, when you're in the midst of it yeah. with everyone else who is also in the midst of it at the same time mm -hmm. one thing i really appreciated and thought was cool at new york comic con was when you're talking about the production team it was never just Rick. You always said Rick and Becky. And I feel like I've heard that sentiment from other people who have worked in the Riordanverse. I interviewed Stephanie Laurie, Rick's book editor, and she had talked about how Becky's such an important person when it comes to editing Rick's stories and keeping him in check and stuff like that. So 
As far as working with Rick and Becky as a team, and then I guess Becky individually, what were her contributions? You know, what what was it like to work with her as part of the production team? I mean, my my experience with Rick was always with Rick and Becky. I mean, even you know, really from from the very beginning of of the early meetings, um, you know, coming onto the show and and having the really big picture conversations about what is this and what do we want it to be and what kind of experience do we all want to have. It was always the two of them. I think she's a really big part of Rick's process. I think she's somebody he trusts. And I think she's someone who has, as much as Rick's perspective on on the story is unique, I think hers is unique also to be that close to it, but seeing it from a, just a slightly different vantage from from where Rick's is. So her input is invaluable. She has a a particular relationship with the fans also. Um, that I think is is just slightly different from Rick's and that I think gives her a certain point of view that is really valuable to have access to and, and to be able to bounce ideas off of and take advantage of. So I, I think having the two of them is um, it's an, an irreplaceable resource, I think, when you're trying to to do what the show is trying to do, which is to both make its fans happy and also engage with people who aren't as familiar. Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough because you're making a show, I think you've even said this in quotes before, where like you're trying to appeal to the fans, to new people, book readers, non-book readers, adults, kids, like it's, there's a lot of different audiences to touch. And now, you know, the show's out there, people are giving various feedback. I've never had this situation happen, but for you, like even, you know, you've worked on other shows, but you're working on something that has like a huge fan of huge IP. What is it like just to create something that has so much hype, so many fans. I, I know you're not necessarily super active on social media, so you may not be like furiously checking replies, <laughs> but just like, how do you deal with something that just has like huge global feedback? It seems tough. I um, I mean, like, it's been nice that the the feedback that's found its way to me for, for you know, you know, for whatever it's worth um, has been really nice. There is really nothing better than hearing from people who are getting to watch something with their kids in a in a dynamic that they don't really feel like they get very often. I think it's really hard to find things that um, both uh, a 12-year-old and their parent parents genuinely want to sit down and watch. And so I think that that feedback has really sort of risen to the surface in terms of um, just making it feel like all right, we did something right. If that's if that's the way people are experiencing it, then that's that's good. I think kind of being a step away from from all of that stuff probably helps a little bit, you know, in terms of the rest of it. But it seems like from from everything that we've gathered and from you know everybody in in the office here that um that the fans it seems feel like um they were met where they wanted the story to meet them. Obviously, everybody we just got opinions about everything, but I think the the general feeling that this met its its expectations on that front is, is, is pretty nice. Yeah. I look, I loved it. I know a lot of listeners, my podcast enjoyed it. So at least for us, we're having a good time. <laughs> Perfect. I heard an interview that you did with Monster Dono, which I think was a really well done interview all around. One line in particular that you said about the adaptations is you said that you didn't want the show just to be like a tribute band, like you're just a cover band out there playing the Percy Jackson hits. And I like that. I think with the adaptation, it's fun to make some changes that always seem like they have a purpose, like they they aren't just changes for the sake of changes. They're doing something, whether that's because of the medium, the narrative, 
something fun. But one thing I wanted to ask you specifically was, were any of the changes like trying to keep fans on their toes with things like the four pearls or missing the deadline? I know when I finished watching episode six, I was like, oh, wait a second. This is different. Like, I know the whole story, yet I am still feeling suspense. What is going on? Was that ever a calculus of like, ooh, the fans aren't even going to know what's happening? I think it was more something I was aware of than something that was driving those decisions. I think um, what really is driving all of them was driving all of them is just a sort of a constant measure of scrutiny of how could this be better? How could it be more exciting? How could it be more surprising? My feeling is if you're doing that right, it leads to all kinds of ancillary benefits. If you're telling the best story you can tell, everything gets better. And I I do think that there were moments where, you know, just trying to, to me, the deadline was just, it just felt interesting. It was just a moment of, um, well, why not? You know, why, why not have things get as, as bad as possible for, for our hero and, and see how he handles it. And then there's a moment of realizing like, well, wait, cause every, every decision got run through this filter of, um, how would a diehard book fan experience this? So that was important, you know, and, 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 um, something that we always wanted to be mindful of. And it felt interesting. It felt like kind of the feeling you just described of, wait a minute, I know this story. and. I understand where it needs to get to and how is it going to get there with that one change? And now this show is in a conversation with you and it's engaged you in a way that I think to me was, was sort of the, um, a, a little bit, I think where that, that notion came from of not wanting to be a tribute band of like, um, if you're just hanging out and listen to cover songs, like it's great. Like it's nostalgia, but it can't engage you in the same kind of conversation. And I feel like if you're going to go through the trouble of making a show like this, it should really be able to do that, too. Yeah, no, I I think it worked. And I think there's one change that also, I guess, because it happened in episode eight, I don't get to know exactly where it's going. But you have Annabeth showing up in the confrontation between Luke and Percy. And first off, it's just interesting. When she showed up, I was like, (gasps) (laughs) I was surprised as all heck. But it also just once the episode is over, I was like, oh, my goodness, this changes potentially everything. Like you have a whole thing in the book where you've got Annabeth not necessarily being able to see what Luke is really doing. She's clouded by her crush for him, the the interesting backstory they have. I guess just with that change, was it more of an intentional thing of like we are actively trying to kind of change the relationship between Luke and Annabeth? Or was it more of just like it felt right for the story that you had already sort of laid out for those first 7.8 episodes? What went into that change? The the latter, I think. I think, um, you know, it, when we got to the point where we were, you know, talking about that that confrontation in detail, because of the way Annabeth and, and Luke had developed over the course of the first seven and, and, and a half episodes, there was just this really palpable feeling, I think, of like, why isn't she? You know, if this relationship is what we're saying it is, and, and you know, he can make this sales pitch to Percy, but it's only because Percy has a, a sort of um, a particular standing, I guess, with with him. What would it be like if he had to say that to the face of somebody who knew him better? And the kid has a invisibility hat. You know what I mean? It's like it all sort of like lined up. It's like, why on earth isn't she there? Um, you know, doesn't that just kind of pay pay more dividends for us? And so I think, you know, some of the things that it changes going forward, we were aware of right away. And I'm sure some of those things will be things that get explored as we go. It just felt like a moment in which 
we could make the lives of the people we care about more challenging and more interesting. And I feel like you you gotta you gotta grab onto those things and hope the story, you know, figures out how to how to adjust for it. Yeah. I'm genuinely very excited to see where it goes. And especially like when you get to book five and you've got like the age difference thing going on, I feel like it can kind of like solve some other problems that might come up. So I'm very fascinated to see how it develops. As far as other changes that I think really work, the instance of when you actually think about the Lightning Thief book, most of what Percy says and the jokes he tells, like a lot of those are from his narration. So you have to kind of create scenes that give the essence of stuff, even though, you know, the show doesn't utilize narration. I think you also did a lot of that with Sally Jackson, because when you think about the book, you know, she's not in a lot of it, but with the show, because you're playing around with the time, you're adding in scenes that kind of give us the essence of Sally, even though it's all new things. So when you are making scenes that are new to the story, but are trying to give that essence, like what's kind of the thought process that goes into making something new that still feels nostalgic, even though we've never read it. But after we see the scene, we're like classic Sally. <laughs> um, I, I think it's, this may not be a very satisfying answer. I think it's by feel. Like I think um, in, in trying to like fully immerse yourself into the story, the experience of those characters, the the emotional terrain and, and, and journey, things pop up you know you just sort of you're 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 painting a painting i guess a little bit and, and and you want for it to feel full and you want for it to kind of have all of the depth and dimension that you you can imagine and um these moments pop up a little bit i think um they all i think may come from slightly different moments of impetus i guess like there there are some that felt like they were filling in gaps of things that 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 were almost suggested by the books to me, that was like the 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 flashbacks were were that a little. You know, I, I think from from the moment that that I read, and certainly from the moment that that I wrote, I don't even know if it was in the cut, but like uh, the dialogue, Percy's dialogue about having been left at six different schools in six different years, it just paints a really stark picture of what that experience must have been like and what must it have done to his relationship with his mother, even if he doesn't know it. I, I felt like I wanted to see that. I wanted to feel it. I wanted to have it be a part of the story. And then separately from that, you know, as you're breaking the story about the underworld, you just have this sense of, um, this is uh, literally and figuratively the lowest point of the story. How do we embrace that? How do we match the... Um, the stakes and 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 sort of literal extreme nature of this story with something as emotionally extreme. And then suddenly those two ideas start talking to each other and you just start to, and I think that's how a structure like that gets gets built. It's sometimes it's from a few different directions at once that start to cooperate with each other. So I would say for every every departure in the show, there's probably a a map you could draw backwards like that of um kind of why and where and, and how it it um, decided to introduce itself into the conversation. Yeah. I mean, I think it works. And I think especially as the season goes on, you kind of see that each of those Sally and young Percy flashbacks, whether it's telling us about Sally or it's informing us about Percy. And then later on with the one in the diner informing us about 
Poseidon, I feel like it is a very interesting tool for everyone to learn about these characters that we all care about, but in a different way. And again, it's just, I think, a creative solution to the, how do we make a show that's based on a book that is mostly first-person narration and... I think it's a it's a fun way to do it. And it's almost like by the end of the season, you recognize, like it's almost like you're getting tricked into <laughs> learning about these characters. You're like, oh, okay. Yeah. Like that scene, that's why Poseidon feels this way. Even though he only talks to Percy for like however long on Olympus, you're like, ah, but I know what he's feeling based on yeah. this flashback. I think it worked out really well. When you really embrace the idea that this is no longer a strictly first person narrative, it starts to paint the book in a certain light. Because a 12-year-old kid may not understand enough about the nature of his relationship with his mother to even note some of the things that are that are present, right? That are that are things that like he might be an adult in therapy before he really kind of pulled apart. And so of course it's not in the book. He's telling you a story as he's experiencing it. And and to open that up and say, you know, we're gonna we're not gonna be quite as rooted to that, suddenly there, there are so many new switches that light up on, on the instrument panel of, of the kinds of stories you can tell. And I think, to me, the, the relationship between Sally and Percy was one of the most compelling and, and, and interesting parts of the story. Just, you know, how hard it is for both of them. And so I think at every opportunity, we wanted to embrace that. And I think the more we embraced it, the bigger that story got until, it, until his father literally walked into the door of the story. We couldn't keep him out. You know, I, I think that that story had gotten so emotionally intense that at the outset of those flashbacks, there was no intention of having Poseidon walk into them. I think the the intensity of those flashbacks kind of summoned him on their own. So sometimes these things, they, they make their own decisions, I think, about how they develop. Yeah. And then something that shows up in episode eight that I think is great talking about Sally, not only are we getting the emotional Sally, but we also get sort of the fun of Sally and we get that incredible shot of the blue pancakes, the blueberries. And is this something when you're bringing in Jet Wilkinson, the director, you're like, okay, look, there's this thing about blue food and it's very important that we get this shot. Like when, you, when you're doing a shot like that, which is like the best fan service shot ever, you know, what kind of, what kind of, effort goes into being like, this might sound silly, but this is an incredibly important aspect of this episode. <laughs> I think by page 40 of episode eight, how hard is it? It's easy because everyone in the production is so invested in that character and that story. There isn't a crew member standing on that set who wouldn't immediately get why that's fun or wouldn't frankly have been able to pitch it on their own. And I, I think that's sort of part of the joy of a project like this is I think when it's working properly, everyone invests from, from us and everybody in the office to the directors, to the producers on set, to the guys behind the camera, to the, you know, everybody is just so emotionally invested in it that that little wake, I think, is from all of us. So now you're, you're talking about everyone on set being invested. I'm assuming for that shot, one of the people in the crew included was Gordon Ramsay because Virginia's pancake flip was top notch. Was she practicing it? Was there someone telling her? Because like I saw that flip and I was like, I love cooking. I've never flipped a pancake that confidently. <laughs> Many talents. First take. Wow, really? <laughs> I don't know, actually, if it was. But no, it is I now. Would have passed. <laughs> yeah, <it's> extraordinary. <laughs> now, 
I wouldn't be the person I am and this wouldn't be the podcast that I run if I didn't talk to you about something I didn't realize about my beloved New York Knickerbockers. Now, when we last spoke, I thanked you for introducing the Knicks into the Percy Jackson world, which I love. And I think it works. Like Percy talks about basketball a lot in the series, so I think it fits. But what I didn't realize at the time is that based on the implications of the solstice and the show taking place in June, you have implied that the New York Knickerbockers are in the NBA finals. And at first it was like, ha 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 fun. And then ever since that episode has come on, the New York Knickerbockers have been very good at basketball. And we actually have like a legitimate chance. Do you feel like, you know, you may have have shaken up the sports world. (laughs) Like I, I am over the moon. And if it's like the blessing of the Percy Jackson show, we could be, we could be in store for something incredible in the city of New York. I, I hate to break this to you. I am a, I'm a lifelong Sixers fan. Oh, and look, it, I'll it, take it. it. My condolences. I look speedy recovery for Joel Embiid, please. Thank you. It's appreciated. Um, it, it, it is always, I am glad you mentioned it. That has always been the funniest in joke <laughs> in the show to me it's that the, um, perhaps the least believable uh, <laughs> part of the story in which a minotaur chases a 12 year old kid um, is the next being in the So who, who knows? Maybe, maybe I'll be right. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad it's not just me. Now it's not just a me and joke. Now at least the two of us get it. So, I'm, I'm, and everybody was, I'm glad I love it. And yeah, it was funny because I hadn't really made that realization until one of my listeners had pointed it out. And I was like, Oh my God, this changes everything. And I made an Instagram <laughs> reel talking about like i you know went full bulletin board with the strings and i was like look you know there's a zach wilson jersey meaning it's in this time frame like the only time if you look at the past dates of the solstice it lines up with the nba finals has to work and then yeah one of the comments because it leaked into nba instagram algorithms one comment was least believable thing about the show (laughs) oh is that really somebody else said that (laughs) that's funny it's good i mean look it's it's a good joke and it's a funny insult at the time because the knicks have been bad for (laughs) most of my living years however i know, I know. The, what <laughs> happens is like i've messed with the universe now and now apparently i know so you're welcome mm-hmm. i guess i'll take it i'll take it but no i i i do have love for the sixers i love how good of a season tyrese maxi has been putting together and i will say like as much as i love go new york go new york go there is no better song in basketball and i think any sport for our team has just won the game then clap, clap your hands everybody great. <laughs> it's an unmatched song it's unmatched yeah. so another sally thing related smelly gabe you get the post-credit scene which is very fun yes. and i think it works well in terms of like we can't have Percy's mom murder a man like I think it works for making that change but something that I found interesting in the scene just like my my inquisitive mind was there like an imagination of who is on the other end of the phone call of who Gabe is talking to like it sounds like his lawyer but it also sounds like he has history with this person was there like a an off screen of like here's who he's speaking with there wasn't I assumed it was some poor lawyer who um, was wishing he had the last 15 minutes of his life back <laughs> Makes sense. No, it totally tracks. Totally tracks. So something that I thought was really fun because I also watched the documentary, the making of documentary after episode eight, which was really cool. You just kind of getting to see everything that went into the production of this. You know, I figured it was a lot, but then you see it all and it's absolutely wild. The sets that you do where you've got, you know, you're building out a full water tank. You are taking an abandoned mall and turning it into a casino. Then there's all the volume stuff. Is there one set in particular where you showed up 
and just thought, I can't believe we're doing this or this is the most impressive thing. There's so many things, but was there one that stood out the most as like, wow? Yeah, I worked on a volume stage very briefly before we started this, but I hadn't been on the full size stage. The, the very first thing we shot was uh, Percy and Grover on 6th Avenue outside the map. And um, there's a moment when you walk onto the stage before call, it's just these gray panels and this sort of concrete block of a thing that looks like it's supposed to be the corner of a fountain, but it's just, you know, it's inert. And then there's a moment when the switch gets flipped and you're in New York City and there's a part of your brain that just turns over inside out because it's so... um, it just it messes with you. So that that was that was the one moment where I felt like um, this is a pretty cool tool. I hope we find good things to do with it. But uh, it's when it when it's when it's pointed in the right direction and it's used properly, it's pretty pretty amazing. Yeah, talking to some of the people that it, through the interviews I did, I spoke with Suzanne Cryer, and she said when she was on the train, like she had to keep telling herself like this isn't actually moving. You know, when you have the stuff going by the windows, yeah. and even knowing that when I watched the making of. You see some of the shots like when Adam Copeland and Walker are practicing fight stuff and you watch for a couple of minutes and you're like, okay, yeah. And then you have to be like, wait, they're not on a beach. Like, it's so strange. Even just being at home on my couch watching a TV screen, I can only imagine what it's like to actually be in the room and have to tell yourself, like, we're not outside. We are indoors. I I think part of what I was experiencing is a little bit about LED panels. And part of it was just um, that, that team, the ILM team. Jeff White and everybody over there was is just so stellar and just the best. And and I think, you know, getting um having a moment of realizing like, oh, we're we're really kind of with with the A team right now is um is fun. And I think there there's so much of the way this show works and why it works that was due to those guys and 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 our internal team, Eric and, and Matt. I could go on for the rest of however much time you want to talk to me about about that team and this crew. And it's it's just um, just a, a, a team of all stars. Yeah, the whole team seems fantastic. Everyone seems to get along really well. And I think that is just one of the coolest things about the show is I've been fortunate to get to talk to a lot of you. And it just seems like everyone has such admiration and respect for everyone. And I think that that shows through in the show, you know, from top to bottom, everyone seems like they are enjoying what they're doing and working well together. And I think that comes through in the show. And one thing I did want to ask you about is the person that you are co-show running this with, Dan Schatz. I feel like the two of you, it seems like you work well together just perfectly. But I also feel like your two vibes are so different that I find it so fascinating. You know, Dan is like very much on social media. He is posting stuff all the time. You are off social media. Like, I I think you have different personalities, but everyone, it's always like Dan and John, Dan and John, Dan and John, and everyone sings your praises. What is it like working with Dan? Are there particular things where it's, you know, skill sets of one versus skill sets of the other, finding the harmony? What's it just like working with Dan? I mean, we we've known each other our whole lives. We're we're Dan's family. Dan's family is family. Um, I think um, there are things that I think we're both good at, and so that becomes fun. And, and having somebody to to you know go back and forth with about about those kinds of things. There are things that he's much better than I am at, which is always uh, something you're you're grateful for when when there's somebody who can sort of step in and and do the things that that, that you wish you were better at. You know, there's nobody I'd rather be doing this with. So it's uh, it's pretty good. 
Now, one thing that I have seen from Dan's social media, and then also I saw a couple of shots of it in the making of documentary, is the working title of the show was Mink Golden. And I had spoken with Daphne Alva about it, and she thought that the name came from like a name generator, potentially the Wu-Tang Clan name generator. Do you know the origins of Mink Golden? I do. Um, uh, we were told um, that we needed a code name for the show, which seemed silly to me. And so I engaged with it on that level and put Percy Jackson into the Wu-Tang name generator. And that's what came out. Yes. Oh, that's so good. That's <laughs> great. I'm, I'm so happy that that is the true answer. I was very excited. As someone, I don't know what my Wu-Tang name generator name is. I tried pulling it up the other day and it couldn't work. There's actually a few of them. So you could get different answers. Okay. But, but yes. I just remember mine not being cool. And I tried every single iteration of Mike Schubert, Michael Schubert, like anything that I could. And I just never could get something as cool as... <laughs> anything yeah very fortunate that it was uh it was both appropriate and um and sounded kind of interesting on its own so well what's funny is they feel like it works better for season two where you've got the golden fleece like when i first heard it i was like oh it must be a season two joke and then daphne was like no 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 wu-tang generator and i was like oh my god just me amusing myself i think that's all okay are you are you a big are you a fan of the wu do you have a particular favorite wu-tang clan song um i i am a fan um i uh do i have a favorite song it's been a while, bit of a, a college thing for me, but uh, yeah, no, it was great. It was nice to, nice to bring them into the family a little bit. Yeah, I'm glad they're in there. The only good thing about Staten Island, the Wu-Tang Clan. Now, something that I didn't even notice when I was first watching the show, I didn't see until the Percy series social media had made a post about it. It was the Rick Riordan cameo where he is in the school room. Was that a Rick decision? Like, who who decided, like, what the cameo would be? Were there multiple things brought to the table? I thought it was a very fun and apt thing, given his history as a teacher. I actually don't remember where the impetus came from, but I do remember as soon as we sort of had that thought that him being a teacher in that room felt right. Do you know what it might have actually been? It might have happened backwards. I think it was actually scripted that there were these sort of faceless, um, you know, backlit teachers, you know, kind of impaneled in, in judgment of Percy. And we were trying to figure out, were we going to just get extras or how were we going to do it? And then it just kind of hit. And I was like, well, it should be Rick. Like, we have a teacher sitting right here. Let's just put him over there. So I vaguely remember there might have been just a bit of arm twisting involved in getting him to go from this side of the camera to the other. But um, but it, it was fun. And I think right away we all knew that that would be a fun thing for the fans to to see in the first few minutes of the show to just like be reminded, like he's here. This is all, all been blessed properly. Mm -hmm. I would love for him to kind of be like his own little Stan Lee where he shows up in every season. Maybe he's a <laughs> guinea pig in season two, you know, <laughs> there could be, he's a chaperone at the school dance in season three. There, the possibilities are endless. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. We had talked about names and something that I find interesting is when I, speak to people in production or when people are talking about you, it's usually John Steinberg. But if you look at the credits, you are Jonathan E. Steinberg. Now, I do know from Googling that there is another John Steinberg. I think he's like a CEO, COO type, something with BuzzFeed. I personally struggle with this as well as Mike Schubert, not the mayor of Potsdam, Germany, but Mike Schubert, the professional podcaster. When it, when it came to picking the Jonathan E. Steinberg, was that solely just like to distance yourself from that? Not distance, but like to separate is, do you prefer Jonathan E. Steinberg? What goes into the different There's name? Actually, 
there was another so the there's another jonathan steinberg who um co-created the rookie ah. on abc i periodically i got a phone call for him today actually but um i think when i joined the guild there was another jonathan steinberg i don't even think it was him and you can't i think or at least what i was told is you can't have the same name as somebody who's already a guild member so that's where that's where that do you i didn't even realize there's another john steinberg in your realm do you get yeah. incorrect emails every incorrect paychecks i i have not gotten paid for him um, but i did i got a call this afternoon from somebody who um, had a lot of updates for me that did not sound familiar and now i'm practiced at it because it happens not infrequently so i just tell them wrong john steinberg and some poor assistant gets yelled at and everybody moves on with their life so uh well again hopefully hopefully there's not too much confusion going forward thankfully i don't get any sort of like german documents coming my way i just get some google alerts about people either saying nice things or mean things about my political decisions yeah then you probably would get more mail if you were the mayor of whatever potsdam germany it's it's uh it's a town outside of berlin i got i got to try to do a show out there i did a show in berlin i didn't invite him i kicking myself i got to try to get him to come to a show so you know we can get the highlander moment of you know there can only be one but nah i just get some some interesting google alerts and and stuff sometimes but apparently he's doing a good job he made potsdam a sanctuary city at one point so good dude there you go so when you are getting ready i mean there's so many things happening with season two in the works and couldn't even imagine like all the different things well you got to figure out i feel like one thing to address is just like there's a lot to do but you want to move quickly because this is a show where the main characters are kids and the kids are aging quickly walker's already taller than everybody (laughs) so is there anything already in the brain of things that you're going to need to do to try to like keep the age of the characters and the looks correct or is it more of just like let's just make the show and not be too focused on extraneous things like that i think a little bit the latter i just kind of i i don't know at some point while we were shooting i mean because we're aware of it you know i mean I, i think it you know it's something we were aware of before we started is a weird thing to say people people grow they age this is what children do like it, it, we were all very aware of it it was just to like i don't know i don't think about it it is what it is he's percy and she's annabeth and Ariane's grover and whatever their bodies do over the next however many years is what they do you know yeah it'd be nice if you know by the time you get to the later seasons walker you know wasn't 30 years old but i think that would be complicated but it it is definitely one of the motivators of trying to make sure that we're, we're moving the trains as as um as efficiently as we can is just to try to get as much of their childhood on the screen as we can yes yeah i had spoken to daphne just asking about all of the writing process and it seems like everyone in the writer's room is a big fan of mythology, whether that was because of love of the books or just general and and i know you know mythology kind of informs decisions you made even on writing choices for black sales and other things you've worked on when it comes to adding in stuff into the show that isn't necessarily from the book there's two mythological things that i think come to mind that are interesting one of which was the hera statue in place of the mechanical spiders and that is something that is like rooted in mythology you can find it in a mythology book and then on the flip side, the crusty being in charge of the underworld thing, at least my Googling, or at least crusty guarding a gate to the underworld, is not a mythology thing. 
was it hard to put in something where you're like, oh, it's not really a thing, but it makes the story fit so well. Like, did that tug at all? Or was it just like, look, it's episode seven. We got to make this work. We got to get crusty in there. Um, a bit of both. I mean, definitely. Um, I think there's um, a community smell test, I think, that's applied to some of those things. Like um, that if you know, there were, there were certain structural reasons why I think it, it made sense for the story to try to kind of replace DOA with Krusty and, and the Poseidon connection felt like it made sense. And it felt like he had things to say about Percy's experience. And so the, the story itself didn't feel like it had any problem with it being there. I think even at that, if we'd all sort of looked at each other and felt like, um, this isn't just not in any canon we can find, but it feels contrary to it. Um, I think we wouldn't have done it. Um, and, and, and I think, um, there isn't really any authority that, or, you know, nobody, we wanted to give authority to make those decisions. We just kind of all felt like we're all like-minded about this and know how we want it to feel. And I think that was one of them where we just sort of felt like, um, sure, why not? You know, this is, it, it, it isn't canonical, but neither is the fact that Procrustes runs a mattress store. So, you know, it's, you're, you're already kind of slightly adjacent to canon anyway. At that point, why not have a little bit of fun? Yeah. And what's fun about the mattress store, specifically, it's a waterbed store. And I'm sure that like working with the kids, I'm sure they absolutely loved the waterbeds. Were they even so young that they didn't know waterbeds were a thing? Like, what was it like bringing in these kids? (laughs) I know it's always the thing. Everything, you know, of all of the filters that get applied to this, and there were a lot of them, there's always this extra one of them. a 12 year old kid going to get this joke or have any idea what we're talking about. So, um, yeah, there, there's a little bit of, um, uh, a, a little bit of, of, I think, um, you know, checking, checking your math on, on that front. There was a whole joke that didn't make it in about how grossed out Grover was by the idea of waterbeds. They just kind of creeped them out. So I think maybe that was the story's way of expressing what you're talking. Yeah. And I think it's something that works in episode five, in the tunnel of love, you play the what is love song, which just a great needle drop, like such a great comedic moment. I heard that that was also one of your calls and I thought that was so funny. And then I went from the high of this is so funny to the immediate gut punch of when Percy says, I heard this in my orthodontist's office. And I think I aged 12 years with that line. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it was that quick. It was, oh, that's fun. And then the moment of like, I don't think that kid knows what that song is. And so I, I checked with my, my kids who are roughly the same age and they had no idea. So, um, yes, a great way to make yourself feel old is to try to write for 12 and 13 year olds. (laughs) Well, I think what's interesting is that you're, you're adapting a book series that I think Rick does a great job of writing kids that feel like kids. I think his teaching background informed that, but you are adapting the series 20 years later. It's already something where some of the jokes are just like, oh, feels a little dated, stuff like that. But you're you're making it so much later that you really have to do the extra step of like, would kids have gotten this joke originally? And then now how do we change it to modernize it? And I think there's good instances like Aries being on Twitter, like totally makes sense. But I guess even technically it was outdated because the time the show came out, it was X. Exactly. Yeah, I think um, from the very beginning, because it was a conversation before anybody put pen to paper of where does this take place? You know, what time frame does this take place? And it felt more interesting to me. It felt important to me that it took place in a time frame that was almost impossible to nail down. Because the moment you start nailing those things down, the faster it ages in 
I felt like if this works properly, it'd be really nice for somebody to watch it 10 years from now and not feel like they're watching a period piece. So I, some of that was intentional. I was sort of trying to um, have this um, feel as timeless as, as it could. Yeah, I think it'll feel timeless unless my beloved New York Knickerbockers make the finals this year. And it's like, oh my gosh, duh, the 2023, 2024 show in the, <laughs> of course. So one thing I, I didn't learn until much later is that one of the writers on the show was Joe, who also wrote the Lightning Thief musical. And I thought that was really interesting to involve someone who is in, who also worked on an adaptation, but a completely different one. What was the experience like of having him in the room writing some episodes? I know he's credited with, I think, two episodes of writing. Were there any interesting conversations of like, okay, you've adapted the thing. We're adapting it differently. I guess just what was it like working with him? Joe Trace not only did the Lightning Thief musical, but he did a show I was a huge fan of, which was the um, Lemony Snicket right. uh, series of unfortunate events. He was a, a big part of that of that show, which when we started this was one of a sort of a very few handful of comps of you know shows that I felt like I watched with my kids when they were younger, but that I also found myself engaging by fun on a different level. Joe's great. In addition to being immensely talented and, and an incredible writer and an incredible sense of imagination, just one of the nicest human beings. And I think, you know, a part of the the culture we were really trying to build around the show, just making sure that everybody that walked in the door was somebody who was who was contributing to it being a, a place where everybody felt like they wanted to come to work. And if even if none of those things were true, Joe, um, as um the co-writer of the consensus song uh with me, um, would have would have paid for himself. And then some, um, just, just for that one contribution. So gosh, consensus is so good. I need it to show up on the official soundtrack. I, I need it to be my ringtone, my text tone, my alarms. Uh, it's fantastic. I love consensus so much. And something I thought was really interesting and I, I full fledged was on board with it was when people saw that Joe was writing an episode and that he was writing episode six and that Lin-Manuel Miranda was in episode six. I don't know if this ever got its way into your ears, but people were rumbling. Is episode six going to be a musical episode? <laughs> I did. I, I heard that from, um, from my niece, um, that that was a thing. It's like, I, no, I don't think so. I hope nobody's disappointed. Um, yeah, no, it's, um, Joe, Joe was great. And, the ability to also to the to to have somebody's voice in the process who had been through um, a, a different kind of adaptation, I think, um, and a different kind of relationship with 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 Rick and Becky, but still in in the universe and the family, really familiar with the fans and with the material was was really helpful. Yeah. Well, look, I think we would embrace a musical episode in the future. We would embrace a different format switch episode, you know. It sounds good. <laughs> All right, we're, we're running out of time here, so I just wanted to give you the opportunity. I always love ending the interviews with production folks like this. Is there any particular story that is just like a funny story, something strange that people might know from not know from set, a behind-the-scenes thing, any particular, like, thing where people would have no idea that this took place, but it's a fun anecdote about the production of the show to share? Um, that's a really good question. I don't know. It's, um, I'm bad at these because the experience of making this show is just like this giant blur of decisions, <laughs> like uh, you know, three years of rapid fire decisions. Um, so I might have to get back to you on that. But uh, yes, I'm sure the answer is yes. I just 
have access to none of it right now. <laughs> totally fine. Totally fine. I guess uh, I tr- tried in on a silly note. I know, I know that they hooked up the volume to play some Mario Kart. Did you get on the sticks? Did you play, or did you just observe the children playing? Actually, not there. I got photos um, without explanation from set of the three kids playing games. I was like, oh, I guess we wrapped early today. So that's, that's good. <laughs> fantastic. That is that is an amazing toy. If anybody ever offers you the opportunity to uh, to to play. Play Mario Kart on the volumes. Look, my inbox is open. You need me to come in to be an extra. <laughs> if I need to be, you know, press it out. Look, I'm what whatever I can do to help the production of the show. You know, just for the for the good <laughs> of you know season two, three, whatever. I'm happy to to come in, do some stuff, make sure the volume is working properly. Absolutely, we uh, we absolutely take you up on that. Please do. Look, I've said for a while. Like there, there's opportunities. You know, I could be Zombie Dad on the Princess Andromeda. I I could be a sleep New Yorker season five. Like there, <laughs> you may get that phone. Be careful what you wish for before you. I'll wish for everything. Of- I'll keep my phone on loud and by my pillow. <laughs> John, thank you so much for joining. Uh, I really do appreciate you taking the time. You're a very busy person, so I thank you for sitting down to have an interview and, and one with some silly questions such as this. This is normally where I ask people if they have anything to plug. Uh, I, obviously, people have Percy Jackson to anticipate, but I believe at this current moment in time, you're working on another season of The Old Man. Anything else you want to plug as well? Uh, we are shooting season two of, um, of Old Man at the moment, which will be out in the fall sometime. Uh, yeah, that's I think between between that and Percy too, we're we're quite quite busy. Awesome, so. awesome. Well, I look forward to that. I look forward to whenever Black Sales gets on Netflix, so I can stream through that. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed indeed. And then I look forward to whatever working title of season two of Percy Jackson is. I guess you'll put in like Annabeth Chase or Thalia Grace or yeah. Grover Underwood into the Wu Tang Generator and see which one sounds the coolest. Exactly. You're. <laughs> That won't work. I got to come up with something else. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'll, I'll know where all the production is. And then, then I'll hop on and I'll be there early already playing, you know, Mario Party on yeah. the <laughs> on the volume. Be like, ah, shouldn't have used Wu-Tang. What were we thinking? <laughs> oh, John, thank you so much. And listeners, thank you for listening. And until next time, till we cross paths again, I'll pursue you later. Hello, hello. Huge thanks to John for taking the time to chat with me. Huge thanks to you for listening. And I know I said I was going to take this week off, but I didn't know where else to slot this interview. And, you know, if you get the opportunity to interview one of the co-creators of the show, you just kind of roll with it. You do the interview and you figure it out later. That's what I always say. Podcast first, ask questions later, even when that podcast episode is you asking questions. But I hope you enjoyed this. For the folks worried about me not taking a break, don't worry. This was an easier one to put together. Together. It's all good. This kind of stuff is a little easier to edit together. So not a huge deal. I still had more of a chill week. Thank you very much. Thank you to everyone who wished me a happy birthday over the past couple of days. That's very kind of you. Thank you to everyone who came to the shows in Denver. Thank you to anyone who comes to the Phoenix show tomorrow, if you're listening to this on the day it came out. And another reminder, we've got some shows in North Carolina that are 
approaching sellout territory. They are on March 9th and 10th in Raleigh and in Charlotte. You can get tickets at thenewsolympian.com slash live. And before we wrap up here and close out this episode, you're going to hear words from a few sponsors who make it feasible for me to be a full-time podcaster. Some of those ads will be read by me. Others of them won't be. The ones that aren't read by me are inserted locally. So if you live in Denver, don't be surprised if you hear an ad for skiing and stuff. It's what I am getting up to today. If you are listening to this on the day it came out, I'll be on the slopes as you listen to me and John talk about nerd stuff. Uh, but once those ads are complete, we will basically just have the outro of the new Olympian. Now, did I post this episode? episode because of a contractually agreed upon ad read that's going to come up. Who's to say? Jury's out. That I may or may not have accidentally scheduled an ad read for the time that I was going to take a break. Uh, but, you know, the episode's here. You're welcome, everybody. But yeah, you're going to hear some ads and then it'll be the end of the episode. This episode of TNO is brought to you by Green Chef. Now, we've got a lot of Greek gods at Camp Half-Blood, but one in particular loves plants a whole heck of a lot. And that's Demeter. And I think recently that I made Demeter very happy because in my box that I got from Green Chef recently, I went with the plant-powered box and I had a great time. And if you want to check that out, you should look into Green Chef. Green Chef is a CCOF certified meal kit company. They make eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle, whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, vegetarian, gluten-free, or just trying to eat more balanced meals. Green Chef offers a range of recipes to suit your preferences. You can nourish your body with chef-crafted, nutritionist-approved recipes packed with clean ingredients that support your healthy lifestyle and also taste good. You can savor Green Chef's seasonally-inspired recipes where they celebrate the peak ingredients, flavors, and freshness of each season. And they deliver everything you need to make convenient, wholesome, and delicious meals directly to your doorstep. Speaking of that delivery, I got a box recently, and the recipes were all quite tasty. I really did enjoy the stuffed bell peppers. It was a kale, black beans, and corn stuffed bell pepper recipe that I really enjoyed. Completely vegetarian. And it was delicious. And no joke, Kelly and I are making it again. We just bought the ingredients from the grocery store. We enjoyed the recipe so much. We kept the recipe card and we're just cooking it on our own. It was very tasty. It was very easy. Made for good leftovers. A plus all around. If you're interested, go to greenchef.com slash 60olympian and use code 60olympian to get 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. Again, go to greenchef.com slash 60olympian and use code 60olympian to get 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. So if you want to impress Demeter and make yourself look good for her and all the cabin mates in Demeter's cabin, check out the number one meal kit for eating well, Green Chef, today. For six generations, the Jones family has been providing high-quality meats. And now, we're providing treats for the best member of your family, man's best friend, a.k.a. the goodest boys and girls. Jones Natural Shoes makes bones and treats that are sure to be savored by your dog and are made from the best natural ingredients available. Our flavorful chews are made from natural animal parts and will have your puppy drooling with happiness. From treats like sticks and chews to savory bones and patties, we've got you covered for finding the perfect reward for that special pup in your life. Jones Natural Chews come in all sizes, so make sure to choose the right treat for your pup. And remember, it's important to be supervising your pup when they're enjoying their treats to keep your puppy safe. Jones Natural Chews, available at a pet store near you. Or visit jonesnaturalchews.com to get started with our store locator tool. That's Jones Natural Chews, available at a pet store near you.
Hey there. Thank you so much for listening to this bonus episode of The New Olympian. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Mike Schubert. I also run the social media and the website. Our editor is normally Sherry Guo, but I put together this bonus episode. The music is by Bettina Kumbamanas and Brandon Google, and the art is by Jessica E. Boyd. I sound different because I'm recording this one on my phone in my hotel room in Denver, where I'm on tour right now. I also just woke up, so that's another factor. If you're listening to this on the day it came out, we do have tickets available, and we have a live show to tomorrow in Phoenix on February 20th. You can get tickets to that show and our upcoming North Carolina shows at thenewsolympian.com slash live. We've got a whole bunch of merch at thenewsolympian.com slash merch. The beads are back in stock, which is very fun. The pens have been back in stock for a minute. There's digital stuff. There's physical stuff, all sorts of good stuff. And there's also exclusive merchandise over at thenewsolympian.com slash Patreon. You can get Persia Later stickers, Persia Later pins, a special Olympic court holographic sticker if you join at the highest tier. Lots of fun stuff over on the TNO Patreon. Thank you for listening. I really do appreciate it. We will be back with a full-fledged episode as we kick off our coverage of the Sea of Monsters next week. That first episode will be live from our live show in Austin, Texas, and the guests are Kelly Schubert and Michael Harley. But until you hear that, I'll see you later. Hold up. 